We are back in Genesis this morning. Um, we've had a couple weeks. We've been through, been going through Genesis for a while, but we had a couple weeks where we got to celebrate Sundays that are very important in our church calendar, where we celebrated along with many other churches across the nation, Sanctity of Life Sunday. And then last week, we celebrated Go Teams and God's calling for us to go to the nations. And now we're back to Genesis in one of the most probably well-known and also one of the most difficult and, uh, and angst-ridden passages in the Bible. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 22. So if you have a Bible, please go ahead and turn there now to Genesis 22. And in a moment, I'm going to read through the passage for us, verses 1 through 19, so that we can take this in together. Um, and I know from time to time I say this, but just as an aside, the reason I want us to start just with reading through the passage together is because this time we're about to have is only important to the extent that I shed light on what God has said. When we read God's word, we're reading what God has said, and that's much more important than anything that any of us up here say about it. So we want to start with the whole passage so that we can experience that together, and then we'll walk through it together as a church family. So Genesis chapter 22, if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen as I read through it. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time. 
and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you've given us your word. And uh, Father, I just pray for preparation for all of our hearts right now. This is um, a difficult passage, and it's also a, um, an unsettling passage. Um, it's difficult because we don't always understand what's going on, and then it's unsettling when we do know what's going on. Father, I pray that you speak through the power of your spirit right now. I pray that you speak to our hearts. I pray that you bring the realities of this story um, to life for us. I pray that you guide me in my words, um, thwart me from saying anything that would not be helpful. And Father, please lead us as a church family to trust in you and to walk with you through the difficult steps of faith that you'll call us to. In Jesus' name, amen. So in in getting started, I want to ask a question for us to consider, not just right now, but throughout the time that we'll be walking through this story. And the question is, what in your life has the potential to become more important than God? Is it money? Money and the idea of security and all that goes along with that, whether it's the enjoyment that you get from it or just the peace of mind to know that you'll be taken care of. Does money have the potential of replacing God in your heart? Maybe there's a relationship that you have. Maybe it's even a fine, good relationship, but you just know there's no way that could be taken from you. It would have to be pried from your cold, dead hands for that ever to be taken away. Does that have the potential to become more important to you than God? Is it your reputation or your dignity Sort of the peace of mind that you get from knowing that people have a certain view of you. Is that so important to you that its importance could replace the importance of God in your life? And even in talking about this, that there may be some of you right now that are thinking, yeah, God's important and that other thing is important. But you know what I'm really glad about? I'm really glad that I don't have to choose. I get to have God and have money. I get to have God and have a relationship. I get to have God and have a reputation. I mean, thank God that I don't have to choose between those two. I I can kind of think in my head what I might do, but I don't have to choose. Sort of like sometimes around the dinner table, as a family, we'll um, we'll ask each other hypothetical questions. And one of the frequent ones that we'll ask the kids is, if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would you eat? And one of my favorite things is to watch them agonize over their answer. Or they're like, oh, there's pizza, and there's burgers, and there's pizza, and there's burgers. Those are usually the two choices. And uh, (laughs) I really like pizza, but I don't want to go without burgers. And at some point, after it's been like five minutes of agonizing, I say, now you understand you don't actually have to choose right now. You understand we're not actually asking you to do that. And we might be thinking that same thing. All right, this is a nice hypothetical question. What would I do if I had to choose between God and this other thing? But thankfully, I don't have to choose. But the news is, you will have to choose. God will put you to the test, and you will end up finding out 
if those things in your life are more important to God, if you are more devoted to them than you are to God. And the bottom line is sometimes those things that can raise to the level of being competitors with God aren't even sinful things. Sometimes they are, but sometimes they're not. But what we're going to discover through this passage is that our devotion to God is tested by whatever could most easily replace him. That means your devotion to God is not going to be tested by the things that you are easily setting aside. It's going to be tested by the things that most rise to the level of devotion in your heart. Our devotion to God is tested by whatever can most easily replace him. And so the question that we get to wrestle with as as we walk through this time is, how do we remove the limits on what we're willing to offer to God? And as we do that, we get to walk through a story where Abraham was dealing with that exact thing. How far is he willing to go? What is he willing to do in in order to show his devotion to God? And we've already read through it. We're going to walk through it again in in kind of part by part. Let me just say now, this is one of the most troubling passages in the Bible. Just objectively, it's troubling. It deals with child sacrifices. This is very disturbing and troubling to us. At the same time, it is one of the most profound and important passages in the whole Bible. And as we're going to see towards the end, it also is at least a whisper and maybe a shout to the message that we would end up having through Jesus. So we're going to walk through these verses. The story kind of breaks up into three pretty simple parts. At the beginning, we have the nature of the test. We have God testing Abraham. In the middle section, we have Abraham's response to that text, to that test. And then finally, at the end, we have God's response to Abraham, and he tells us the purpose of the test all along. So in verses one and two, we start with the test itself and the nature of this. It says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now, now this should come with a, a little brackets section that just says, spoiler alert. We are told at the beginning, this is a test. And frankly, I, I think that that is very, very significant because we're dealing with a disturbing passage. And if we weren't told at the beginning, this is a test, we might have all sorts of questions. Well, what's going on? We, we know that the surrounding nations at this time practice child sacrifice at times where they sacrifice their child to the, to the gods. And is God the same kind of God? Is, is the God we believe in? Is he that same kind of God? What's going on here? And, and did God decide along the way that maybe he would change his mind and not have Isaac sacrificed? What all is happening? But we're told at the very beginning, this is a test. Our drama over this isn't about is Isaac going to be okay because we're told right at the beginning, this is a test. And if you're disturbed and you're saying, well, how could God ask Abraham to do this? This is a, it's a test. He's not going to have Abraham do it. So at least part of our, the, the fact that we're troubled about this right at the beginning, we're told, you know what? This is an odd story. This is an odd circumstance. But remember, this is a test. In fact, Bruce Waltke in his commentary says this, and I think that it's very insightful. He says, the focal point of the story is not the danger to Isaac, but the danger to Abraham and his relationship to God. He goes on to say, the Hebrew word tested does not mean to entice to do wrong. With a personal object, it means to test another to see whether the other proves worthy. God is putting Abraham to the test, and not because he wants Abraham to stumble, but because he's giving him a chance to reveal what's really going on in his heart. 
And of course, in verse 2, we get to read through the test itself. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. And the region of Moriah, where we'll see later on, it was about a three days journey, probably at least parts of three days to get there. Um, the region of Moriah is almost certainly in Jerusalem. And not only that, but it's the spot that later on the Israelites would offer sacrifices on, this exact spot. Go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. And just a, a couple things here. You see at the beginning of verse 2, it says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. And then he tells Abraham, go, which is familiar if you remember the story of Abraham, because back in chapter 12, Abraham's entire story began with God coming to him and saying, go, go from your family, go from your country, go from your home, go from what's familiar, go. And at the end of that, he said, to a place I will show you. And look at the end of verse 2. Offer him as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. In many ways, this is, is putting the bookend on the story of Abraham. And, and the, the story of Abraham, in some sense, it goes on for a couple more chapters. But really, this is the last story that Abraham is the main character in. It started with, go to a place I will show you, and it ends with, go to a place I will show you. But also, if you've been here as we've been walking through Genesis, you might think, all right, a lot must have happened from the last passage we went through. Because the last passage we went through was, in essence, God putting his arm around Abraham's shoulder and saying, look up at the stars of the sky, so will your descendants be. Abraham was an old man with an old wife, and they didn't have any children, and they'd never been able to have children. And God said, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to give you offspring. And here we are in chapter 22, and suddenly Abraham has the offspring, and he's being told to do something about it. So lots happened in between. I, I won't talk about every part of it, but, but there was one significant point along the way, and that's that once Abraham and Sarah knew we're supposed to have this child, Sarah had an idea. She said, I've never been able to get pregnant, so maybe this is how God's going to do it. Take my maiden, Hagar, you sleep with her, she'll get pregnant, and then she'll kind of have a child on our behalf. She'll be our surrogate, and we'll have the child together. Um, in fact, and, and this is just a, a neat little note here, in the Hebrew, what it says is, Sarah took her handmaiden, Hagar, and gave her to her husband. It's the exact same Hebrew construction that shows up in Genesis 3, where Eve takes the fruit and gives it to her husband. If you were reading this in Hebrew and you were familiar with this, as soon as you read this in Genesis 16, you'd be saying, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh. Like this happened before and it didn't turn out well. We got kicked out of the garden for that once. What's going to happen here? It's a signal that this was not good. And it was not good. It was, a, it was a lapse of faith on both their parts. And Hagar does become pregnant and she ends up having Ishmael. And in essence, God says, all right, I, I'm going to bless Ishmael, but that's not the son I promised you. Genesis 17, he changes Abraham, Abram's name to Abraham and Sarai's name to Sarah and reaffirms the promise and gives them the covenant of circumcision. Chapter 18, he appears to them again and says, at this time next year, you'll have a child. And Sarah overhears this and she laughs. She's 89 years old. She's thinking, really? This time next year, I'm going to have a child? You know what the name Isaac means? Laughter. That's where the name came from. And in chapter 21, Sarah has a son and names him Isaac. And you can just imagine, I mean, there's some of you that have dealt with infertility or have just dealt with that longing for a child and the idea of finally having that child and the joy that comes along with this. They waited respectively 190 years for this child. 
What I mean is 100 years and 90 years, not 109. Yeah, you get it. <laughs> this was the child of the promise. This was their pride and joy. They have this son, Isaac. And then we get to these haunting words in chapter 22 when Abraham is told, take that son and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. This is deeply troubling. And we already should have questions. What in the world is he going to do? But before even that, I just want to talk for a minute about this whole concept of the test. Abraham gets a test. God, the God that we believe in, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is a sort of God who gives us tests. This is not outside his realm. And some of you are facing pretty difficult trials right now. You're facing, you're, you're in the heat of it. It's intense. You're facing difficult trials. Maybe it's something having to do with your health or it's something having to do with broken relationships or finances. You're dealing with a trial. And there's a big temptation for those of us that are believers to say, the reason I'm facing this is because of Satan. The reason I'm facing this is because I have an enemy and the enemy has thrown this, this difficulty into my way. He's trying to thwart me. And the deal is, there is that component to these things. The enemy does want to seize upon opportunities and thwart us and cause us to fall. That's absolutely true. But just remember this. The enemy doesn't get to do anything without God allowing it to happen. Satan is on a leash. If you're facing a trial, it's not because Satan is thwarting God's plans to give you a trial. It's because God has said, I'm going to send you a trial. In fact, there's a, a strange passage, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul writes about how he has a thorn in the flesh, which is, a, it's a strange thing. We don't know what it is, if it was a physical difficulty, it's some kind of difficulty. And the only information he gives us about the thorn in the flesh is he says, it's a messenger from Satan. So you think a messenger from Satan, I don't know much, but that's bad. Messenger from Satan is tormenting him in some way. But then Paul says this. He says, this messenger of Satan was sent to me to keep me humble. I want you to think about this. Just reason this out in your minds. Does Satan want Paul to be humble? No way. Satan doesn't want Paul to be humble. Satan wants Paul to be self-sufficient and proud and arrogant of his own strength. Satan doesn't want Paul to be humble. Who wants Paul to be humble? God wants Paul to be a humble. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So who is it who sent that messenger from Satan? That was God. Now, now when we face trials, especially just the really, really overwhelming trials, it, it can be difficult for us because we want to say, well, well I, I don't want to believe that God sent me this trial. I don't want to believe that this, God has a hand in this. And it's much easier to just sort of let God off the hook and say, no, that, that wasn't God. That was that other person. That wasn't God. That was Satan. That, that, that wasn't God. That, that was something else that happened. That was just the world is a bad place. It wasn't God who sent it. We are anxious to let God off the hook. And God is much less anxious to let himself off the hook. If you're facing a trial, in some sense, this is a trial from God. And you know what the good news about that is? That means he's still in charge. That means there hasn't been a palace coup and somebody has set you a trial without his knowledge. God is the kind of God who does test us. And if you're being tested, God's not doing that to trip you up. But God is doing that to allow the opportunity for your true affections to come out and for you to be sharpened. We see the test with Abraham, and, uh, and I'll just say this. It, it, here's what I would expect verse 3 to be. 
What I would expect verse 3 to be is Abraham was up all night. Abraham was agonizing. Abraham was bringing in spiritists to cast spells to try to talk to God again. Like, I need clarification here. Abraham was agonizing over that and spent the next seven days trying to figure out a way out of this. And finally, he just relented and went. But instead, here's what we read in verse three. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Now, we're going to see in a few minutes what in the world must have been going on inside of Abraham that would allow him to get up early the next morning and get going on this near impossible task that God was sending him on? Verse four says, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Anybody else kind of troubled by this? That doesn't seem right. Is he just lying to the servants here? It's like, I can't tell them what's really going to go on. So I'll just tell them we'll be back soon. This is a baffling thing for him to say. And it is possible we could look at this and say, well, this is just, you can't say what's really going on. He hadn't told them the real truth of what was going to go on there. So he's just buying time. He's just kind of telling a white lie of, uh, about what's going to happen. That's possible. But as we're going to walk through this, I, I'm going to say that that's pretty unlikely that that's actually what's going on. And if this wasn't difficult enough for Abraham to have the intention of moving forward, to begin climbing that mountain where he's going to sacrifice his son, he gets another kick to the gut because his son speaks up. Verse six, it says, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son, Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac's doing some math right now. Like, all right, we got almost everything we need, but I'm not quite sure how this is going to work. And, and as a side note on this, um, we're not told exactly how old Isaac is here. Um, now, now we know um, he's been born, because that happened in the last chapter. So we know he's older than like one day old and he was weaned. All right, so, so he's past that. Um, in, chapter 20, uh, in chapter 23 is when Sarah, his mother, dies. And when she dies, Isaac is 137. Uh, uh, he's 37 because she dies at 127. Um, so we know he's somewhere between being weaned and 37. Um, he's referred to as a boy, both in verse 5 and then later on when God speaks, he calls him the boy. Um, that's the same designation that's given to Ishmael back in chapter 21. And Ishmael at that time was probably 15 or 16. So we could say, all right, he, he's probably not an eight-year-old here. He's probably a teenager, maybe even early 20s. But, but let's just say, all right, seemingly he, he's a teenager at this time. He says, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And this is really the point where you can just imagine Abraham at this moment. That he's saying, all right, I can't believe God's going to make me do this. But all right, I'll, I'll get up. I'll get the wood ready. I'll get the fire ready. I'll get the knife ready. I'll get my servants. We'll get on the donkey. We'll go out there. We'll climb the mountain. Please just don't say anything that will distract me from this. Because if Isaac says anything, it's just going to break my heart. And then Isaac clues in that he sees that there's something odd going on. And you can just imagine, this is the point right here. This is the moment. 
This is the moment where Abraham could just do an about face and say, I just can't do this. God, you've asked too much. I just can't do this. I can't go through with it. I can't handle it. I'm going to turn around. We're going to go back. Come what may, do what you need to do. I can't do this. But the crisis point is answered in verse 8. Abraham answered, God himself will provide a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now, this does bring us the question, what exactly did Abraham expect was going to happen here? And we don't know for sure, but it seems like Abraham thinks that there's going to be some kind of divine intervention. There's going to be something that happens here. Because he said back to the servants, we'll be back. And then he says here to his son Isaac, which again, I guess if you want to, you could chalk up to another just harmless lie or a lie that he just can't figure out any other way around. So he says, uh, God, God will provide. I don't know. God will provide. We're not told other than these statements a lot of what was going on inside of Abraham's head, but the author of Hebrews gives us an interesting clue. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. If you're really, really fast, you can turn there. If not, you can just listen as I read it for us. It says, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And here's the key verse, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Here's our best guess at what Abraham is thinking. He's walking up the mountain with his son and he's saying, God made promises. God made promises and they weren't vague. Isaac doesn't have any children yet. My offspring is going to come through him. The blessing is going to come through him. And yet I'm supposed to sacrifice him. So I don't know what's going to happen here. But maybe what's going to happen is God is going to have me go through with this and then God is going to raise the dead. Either way, at some level, Abraham believed we're going up this mountain, we're coming back down this mountain. And his reasoning for being able to do this is that he said, God will provide. Why was he able to get up early in the morning? Because Abraham believed somehow God will provide. Why was he able to walk up that mountain? Because at some level, he believed God will provide. Why was he able, as we're going to see in a, in a minute in verses 9 and 10, why was he able to get to the point of raising the knife where he really was going to go through with it? Because he believed God would provide. In fact, skipping ahead, you may have noticed this when we were reading through the passage earlier, but verses 13 and 14, we see that Abraham names the place God will provide, and then a saying comes out of this place. And the saying is, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And just think of this. Years and centuries later, as the Israelites are walking up this same exact mountain to offer their sacrifices. And maybe one of them is bringing the first fruit of the flock, uh, not of the flock, uh, of the grains. That they've had the harvest come in and they're offering the first fruits. And they're saying, all right, we're offering the first fruits. We don't know if God's going to provide the rest. This is a little bit scary. We're giving this up. We're giving up the crops. If God doesn't come through, we're in a lot of trouble. But you know why we're still going to offer the first fruits? Because on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. We are putting ourselves in a position where we are absolutely banking on God's provision. And if God doesn't come through, we're out of luck. 
on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And this is a moment where it's good for all of us to ask, how is it that I am going to be capable of climbing the mountain of faith and being willing to offer to God what's most precious to me? How is it that I'm going to be able to ascend that mountain, climb up there and offer to God my career if that's what he calls from me? And maybe for some of you right now, that is what God's calling you to do. Maybe right now you're in a job where you are being forced to compromise your integrity or you'll have to get out. And you've been delaying it and delaying it and delaying it. And now God is calling you to climb that mountain and make that sacrifice. And you're looking at your life and you're saying, I don't, how are we going to be taken care of? What kind of career am I going to have? Or maybe God's calling you away from that, not because there's an integrity issue, but just that God is calling you to do something else with your life. And you know it's going to be a major pay cut. You know it's going to be a major shift. And you're saying, how are we going to be taken care of? How is this going to happen? How do I know I'll be okay if I make this sacrifice? And the reason that you know it's going to be okay is because on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Some of you right now may be in relationships, romantic relationships that you just need to get out of. It's done, it's time to get out. Either it's unhealthy or maybe you're sleeping together, so you're, so, so you're living in sin because of this. And it's time, you need to let that go. But that's terrifying. And the reason that's terrifying is that what's going through your head is, will I ever find anyone else? Will I ever find love? This might be my only shot at it. What's going to happen if I give this up? What's going to happen if I climb this mountain and sacrifice this thing that's so important to me? And what's going to happen is that on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And some of you right now are, are dealing with reputation. And you're saying, you know what? I've got something going on in my life. I need to talk to other people about it. I need to talk to somebody else. I need to either confess a sin or I need to talk about this dysfunction that I'm experiencing because if, if I don't, I'm going to be taken down and God is clearly calling me to open up about this. But if I open up about this, my reputation before that person, it's, it's going to go down. My dignity is going to go down. And just by the way, that may be true to a small extent, but chances are your view of your own reputation is a lot higher than that other person's view of your reputation. So you're like, oh, they're going to be crushed and have such a different view of me. Maybe not. Maybe they already kind of knew you were messed up. <laughs> but nonetheless, it's frightening. And you are climbing that mountain. You're saying, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can fess up. I don't know if I can talk to them about it. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided for you. Some of you are dealing with adult children right now that are making terrible decisions and you are currently enabling them. You're currently walking in a way that they are able to continue in their destructive behavior because you are unwilling to do the hard work of backing off. You still want to control the situation. And you're sitting there asking the question, but what's going to happen if I really offer that up to God? On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Here's what Abraham is banking on saying, I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know how this is going to flow out, but I'm going to put all my trust in the fact that the God who's asking me to make this sacrifice will somehow provide and make up for whatever's going to be missing after this. And we get a picture of just how fervent Abraham's faith was because verse 9 says, when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on top of the altar, on top of the wood. 
Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Abraham is not bluffing here. Abraham is not all words. He is about to go through with this. And suddenly there's intervention. And when there's intervention, we get to find out why did all of this happen? What was the purpose of all this? And in verse 11, it says, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And I just got to imagine that was the fastest here I am ever. He was just like, Abraham. And by the way, in verse one, says that God called out to him for the test. He just calls out Abraham and Abraham says, here I am. Here it's twice, Abraham, Abraham. And you just got to imagine Abraham was like, oh gosh, thank God. Thank God. All right, what is it that you want? I'm willing to pause what I'm doing to talk to you right now. Here I am. And listen to this. If there's ever a point in this passage where we think, well, God is cold and unfeeling. Abraham's heart is breaking over his son. God doesn't even care. Listen to God's words about Isaac. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Do you really think Abraham loves Isaac more than God loves Isaac? There's no way in the world. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. And it's those words right there in verse 13. Now I know. I'm sorry, in verse 12. Now I know. And it could be easy for us to say, well, but God knows everything. God already knew. Why does he need to do this? Now I know. Now there is not a doubt. Abraham, now I know that there is nothing that I could ask you to do that you wouldn't do. And you know how I know that? If you weren't willing to spare your son, there's nothing you're going to hold back. Abraham, now I know. The test has been passed. We're still not exactly sure how it's all going to work out, but the test has been passed because Abraham wasn't even willing to spare his own son. He was fully devoted to the Lord. And we get the answer in verse 13. It says, Abraham looked up and there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. Uh, He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And just, I don't think a lot of you would get caught on this, but just in case you're wondering, wait, back in verse eight, he said, God will provide a lamb, but then there's a ram. Why a lamb and then a ram? Why aren't they the same? A lamb is a young sheep. A ram is an adult sheep. There's not a conflict here in what's going on. Uh, Abraham was just a little bit off in the age, I guess, of what he thought was going to happen. Verse 14, I already referenced this. So Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Now, once again, Abraham didn't know how God was going to provide, but that's what he was banking on. Some way, somehow, I'm about to lose something, but God is going to make up for it. I'm about to lose something, but in the end, I'm going to come out ahead. I'm going to sow, but the harvest somehow is going to be better. And when you're sowing and when you're sacrificing, you don't know how it's always going to work out. But sometimes God has a little bit of a sense of humor. And as soon as we're willing to give that thing up, that's when he gives us the thing that we were willing to give up. There's a family that Karina and I knew when I was first out of college, when we were first out of college and I was a youth pastor. And the thing thing that was interesting about their family, they had four kids, but the two oldest were really close in age, like just a couple months apart on these two girls. And, uh, and they weren't twins, but they were really close in age. And uh, the story was this. They had tried for years to have kids. And they dealt with the sadness of infertility, and they tried some different things. And they finally had to reach a point as a couple. And the point they had to reach is to say, we are no longer going to play God and make an idol out of having biological children. We are going to lay that down. We're going to climb the mountain. We're going to offer that to God and we're going to adopt. 
And while they were deep into the adoption process, guess what happened? She got pregnant. They didn't get one little girl. They got two little girls. And you just got to look at that. And I'm not going to pretend that I know everything that God does for every reason, but you got to just look at that. And, and it's hard not to assume. Here's what God was doing. He was seeing if they were willing to lay down that idol. And once they did, he was more than willing to give it back. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And then we get just the, the outflow of this. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and, and said, I swear by myself. By the way, sometimes, some of you probably don't do this, but sometimes somebody will say, I swear to God or I promise to God. Here God is like, I swear to me. That there's no greater way for God to swear. I swear to me, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the, su- uh, of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants And they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed at Beersheba, where this whole story began at the beginning. We get all the promises of God reaffirmed. Land, blessing, offspring, all coming to you, Abraham, reaffirmed. I swear by myself all this is going to happen, but now walking in a new way because God can truly say to Abraham, now I know. If there was any doubt, if it was all words, if it was just a bunch of platitudes, now I know that there is nothing you will hold back from me. And so as we read this story, we we have to come back to ask this question that I posed at the beginning. How can you remove the limits on what you're willing to offer to God? Because for most of us, we have things that we're more than willing to give. It's like if you're sitting at a nice dinner and somebody's like, can I have some of your broccoli? You're like, (laughs) take as much as you want. Maybe that's just me. Revealed something about myself. They're like, can I have some of your steak? You've got your own plate. God tests us, not by asking us to give up what's easy for us to give up. He tests the limits to see if we're really willing to give up anything. How can you remove the limits on what you're willing to give to God? I've already given lots of examples and there could be other examples, but what is it that is most likely to replace God in your heart? And the the tough thing about this is sometimes we end up coming up with the answer and we say, well, well, it's, it's something that's sinful. It's a sin that I've been unwilling to give up. And there, it's not that it's easy, but it's at least a a bit more clear. And you say, all right, well, well, if it's a sin, it's time to repent and it's time to get accountability and, and it's time to confess to other people and it's time to really fight the good fight against that. If that's a sin, you want to give that up. But then there's other things that you might look at and you might say, well, it's, it's not only something that, that's not sinful, but it's something that I can't give up. And maybe you're resonating with the story and you're like, really, the, the potential idol is my kids. It is my family. And I'm not supposed to just give them up. Like that, that's something that God has brought into my life. So what am I supposed to do about that? And you know, I, I don't know exactly how all we work through that, but I know one thing that we do is we consistently, prayerfully commit that to the Lord. Say, all right, she's not my wife, God. She is your child. All right, God, they're, they're my children, but I'm just sort of the underparent. You are the true parent. 
we commit them to the Lord. We don't try to control the situation. And you know what, for, for some of the rest of you, you might be thinking, well, actually, the thing that I'm thinking of that, that might be able to compete with God, it's, it's sort of just this hobby. It's this innocuous thing. You know, it's, it's golf or it's cars or it's just something that, that there's nothing sinful about, but it's something that I, I find myself really preoccupied with. And you know what God may call you to do? God may call you just to take a month off. You might want to test yourself. You might want to take a pretest and say, if God ever calls me to give this up, I'm not sure what I do. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do a trial run. I'm going to get away from this. I'm going to turn off social media for a month. I'm going to walk away from this hobby for a month. I'm going to cut this thing off for a month because you know what? I need to find out if I really can do it. I need to find out where my heart really is. God is calling us to be ready for the time that he gives us the test. And when he gives us the test, the way that we are going to survive that test is if we are absolutely convinced that on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided for us. But let me just bring something else into view that we don't want to miss from this passage. God was able to say to Abraham, now I know. And don't you want to be able to say to God, now I know. Don't you want to be able to look at God and say, God, you're asking me to do some hard things and it's really scary for me to give up. But you know what, God? Now I know. Now I know that you never hold out on me. Now I know that you love me deeply. Now I know that there's nothing that you wouldn't do for me. Now I know. Don't you want to be able to say to God, now I know? I want to read for you Romans chapter 8, verse 32. And I want you to listen to how eerily connected it is to the passage we just went through. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God said to Abraham, now I know, because you didn't even spare your son. We get to say to God, now I know, because you didn't even spare your son, your only son, the son you love. If there's ever any doubt of God's heart towards us, if there's ever any doubt of God's commitment to us, we really get to say, now I know. How could I question that? God sent his one and only son, not only to come to this earth and humble himself, but to be slaughtered on our behalf. And Jesus didn't have a ram show up as a substitute for him. He was the substitute for us. We are brought into the family of God so that we can say to God, now we know. There's no way you'll hold back. By the way, you might have noticed there's some eerie things in this story that connect it to Jesus. Anybody notice on what day Abraham noticed the mountain? On the third day. Anyone notice who pulled the wood up the mountain? It was Isaac. Who pulled the wood up the mountain about 2,000 years after this? Jesus carried his own cross. There is no coincidence with this story. This is God maybe whispering, maybe shouting early on, giving a shadow, giving a picture of something that he would do in a much greater way, of a father leading his son to slaughter. And then a father who didn't spare his own son, but sent him to be slaughtered so that we could be adopted into the family. Whatever it is that you're facing, whatever it is that God is calling you to give up, to be willing to offer to him, you truly get to say to God, now I know that there's nothing you'll ever hold out on me. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Let's pray. 
Father, this is heavy. Um, and we just know there's, there's parts of this passage that are hard to understand. Um, and then we also know even when we do understand them, they're still hard. Because you're calling us not to a casual connection with you. You're really calling us to be fully devoted. And that's scary because it means that we have to be willing to give up things that we don't want to do without. Father, I pray that you lead us by your spirit. I pray that you lead us by faith. I pray that you remind us of the many times that we have seen you come through, the many times that we can look back on and say, God provided and so God will provide. Lead us as people of faith, walking forward with open hands before you. And Father, I pray for for the people who are in here right now who are in the heat of things and are being called to give up something. I pray that you fill them with the courage that they need. I pray that you lead them up that mountain by the hand. And Father, I pray that you speak words of encouragement and comfort into their hearts so that they truly know that there is nothing that you hold out on those that you've committed yourself to. We pray this in the name of your great son who you didn't spare, Jesus Christ. Amen.